Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for going to the cross for us to make us clean. We pray now that as we continue our worship and as we open up your word, that you would bring a light to it and shine it into our lives, that we might hear a word you want us to hear that will help to transform our lives, to make us more like Jesus. Pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be speaking into our hearts and minds now, asking this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In 1980, the federal government passed a law declaring that the third Monday in January would be a federal holiday to honor, to honor minister and civil rights activist Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was the figurehead of a movement that inspired our nation to reject unjust laws and practices of prejudice against people of color. His iconic I Have a Dream speech in August 1963 called for the end of racism and civil and economic rights for all. He painted for us a picture, a vision, on the founding principle of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and that more importantly, he painted a vision on the founding principles throughout the Word of God, such as biblical justice, compassion, and freedom for all. It is fitting today that we are in Acts chapter 10. Fitting, although it was not planned. Dr. Luke records that the gospel went out and that as it was setting people free, that the gospel went out to the Gentiles, to all the nations that God was calling to himself. God used Peter as his agent to reach the Gentiles. And what was most surprising was not that they believed in Jesus, but that when they believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon them just as the Holy Spirit had come upon the Jews on Pentecost Sunday. And just as the Holy Spirit had come upon the Samaritans when Peter and John laid hands upon them after they came to believe. Jesus had given Peter the keys to the kingdom. In Acts 2, the Jews received salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the church was born when Peter preached. In Acts 8, after Philip had preached to the Samaritans and they believed, Peter and John went, down to, went up to Samaria and they laid hands on the Samaritans so that they too might receive the Holy Spirit and be included in the body of Christ, the church. Now in Acts 10, God sends Peter to open the doors to the Holy Spirit and to the church for the Gentiles. Fulfilling the promise that after the disciples had received power, 
they would be as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Even the Gentiles were to be brothers and sisters with the believing Jews within the eternal family of God, the church. My hope today, as I preach this message and as you listen, is that we will all see how God worked in Peter to overcome prejudice. And my hope today is that we at North Sub will be willing to face whatever prejudice or ill will that exists within us toward others, whether it is because of race or ethnicity, culture or identity or gender identity or something else. My hope today is that we will put that prejudice to death. In Colossians 3.5, we are admonished to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The big idea today is this, that prejudice is overcome when we assume a posture of humility toward God, a posture of submission to God's agenda, and a posture of unity and purpose in the people of God. Today, as we go through Acts 10, I will only highlight a few of the verses. So I want to encourage you that when you go home later today, sit down and take some time to read the entire chapter. There is an awful lot that goes on if you will just take the time to ponder it. Now before we dig in to the text and we dig into how God exposes prejudice and how He deals with it, I want us to understand or come to at least a common understanding of what prejudice is. There are many, many definitions and I've gone and looked at them and I've leaned um, heavily on a few, uh, including John Piper, um, Timothy Keller, and some others. But for our purposes this morning, I want to say that prejudice is a preconceived judgment or opinion that causes us to avoid others or belittle others or hurt others because they are different from us, such as race, ethnicity, religion, culture, gender, gender identity, or some other identifying characteristic. While we will look today at prejudice within Peter, it would be wrong for us to think that this prejudice was only one-sided. The truth is that prejudice is common to all people. It is part of the human sin nature. It makes us most unlike Jesus, if you think about it. Jesus was the Holy Son of God. And there could be no greater divide and no greater difference than the difference of His holiness and our sinfulness. And though we are sinners, Jesus did not despise nor diminish us. He came to us. He loved us. He died in our place to give us life. 
He did all this while we were unlike an alien to Him. There was no prejudice in Him, only God's redemptive love and grace that overcomes prejudice. So I invite you now to open up your Bibles to Acts 10. And as you do, we will look together at how God dealt with the prejudice in Peter and how He will deal with it in us. The first thing that we see in Peter is a posture of humility toward God. In Acts 10, Dr. Luke records that a Gentile, Cornelius, a Roman centurion who lived in the Roman capital city of Caesarea by the sea, a beautiful city, that he had a vision. Now, Cornelius was not a typical Roman occupier. We read in verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He believed in the God of the Jews. He abided by Jewish religion and ethical standards. He would have attended synagogue, but he would not be a proselyte, nor would he be circumcised. And though he was respected by the children of God, he was still a Gentile outsider, excluded from the covenant. One day in prayer, an angel came to him and told him to send for Peter, who was in Joppa, at the home of a tanner. Cornelius sent two servants and one devout soldier. Dr. Luke's account then shifts to the next day. And while it shifts to the next day, the focus turns to Peter. Peter is in Joppa at the tenor's house. And he is on top of the rooftop in prayer at midday. He is in a humble posture of prayer with the Lord. Peter is not telling God what he wants to do. He's not requiring anything of God, but Peter is open and he is submitted and he is listening to God and in a receptive place, humble before God. And it is during this time that Peter sees a vision. A sheet is lowered down from heaven and inside of this sheet are animals that are clean and unclean. And then Peter hears a voice. And the voice says, Rise, kill, eat. But Peter refuses. He knows the dietary laws of the people who are of the covenant of God. They are to keep kosher and not eat any food made from unclean animals, but only from those which God has declared as clean. I'm sure that Peter would have thought about Daniel and his friends 
and how while they were in exile in Babylon, and they were brought into the king's service, and they were to eat of the king's table, that they resisted eating unclean foods to adhere to the dietary kosher laws of their faith. And for this, they were blessed. We shouldn't be surprised then that Peter would refuse. But three times, Peter sees this sheet with clean and unclean animals. And three times he hears the voice say, Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. Peter struggled to understand. So look now at verse 17, and we'll read through verse 23, what the text says. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And when Peter was pondering the, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. Now there are a few things that we should discern from chapter 10. First of all, God has chosen quite a stellar person in Cornelius. A Gentile who was God-fearing and who probably would have been one of the most acceptable Gentiles, not only to Peter, but to the believing Jewish community of the church. God was going to help them get over their religious, racial, and cultural prejudices against Gentiles. So Cornelius was a perfect choice. But God was also preparing Peter to overcome the prejudice within him as well. And through the vision, God moved Peter into the discomfort of his own prejudice. While Peter was in the humble posture of prayer, God showed him these animals that were clean and unclean. And he was instructed to rise, kill, and eat. Peter said, no, I will not. Three times this happens, and Peter was perplexed as he thought about this. But God was moving him into that uncomfortable place within himself with that vision. Symbolically, he was moving him closer to what would make him uncomfortable 
about the Gentiles. That they were unclean, sinful. In fact, Jews at that time referred to Gentiles as dogs. Perhaps not to their face, but they used that, those words, that word exactly to describe them. They thought of them as unclean sinners. But whatever God deems clean is clean. The disciples would know that. Jesus had taught that it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. It is not race that comes out of us, but it is prejudice. It is prejudice that defiles a person and makes them unclean. So God is preparing Peter to overcome whatever prejudice exists within him toward Gentiles. And the third thing God does to help Peter get over this is he makes it very clear what this is all about. And he says... To Peter, there are three men here. I want you to go with them without hesitation. And we can't assume that at least one of those men was a Gentile, perhaps all three. And yet, Peter would go with them and associate with them. And he would go against the cultural norm by doing so. Because it was clear that God had commanded him. And that would help Peter to not rationalize away the commands of God and to hold on to the prejudice he had toward Gentiles. They spent the night. The trip was 30 miles. And so... It, they would have to leave in the morning. And the next day, they made that journey. Peter, those two servants, that devout soldier, and it says that Peter brought with him six believing Jewish brothers. Now the next thing we see is a movement from the posture of humility toward God to a posture of submission to God's agenda. We read in chapter 10 that Cornelius is expecting Peter to come. He's not merely expecting Peter to come. He's invited family and close friends to be there so that they too may hear what he will hear what the angel promises will bless him and those who are present. Peter enters and Cornelius falls at his feet. And Peter tells him to rise. He's just a man. But Peter can see the devout nature of Cornelius in his response. Now, it might be hard for us to imagine, but in ancient days, there were homes that were big enough 
that you had to pass through a large foyer way. There may have even been a garden there. And when he comes further into the house, Peter is astonished to see all the people that are in Cornelius' home. Peter admits his surprise. And he says that he came without objection because God had commanded him. And then Peter asked Cornelius why he sent for him. Cornelius, of course, tells Peter of this angelic vision. We read in verse 33, Now therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. When Peter would later recount this to the church in Acts 11, he would say this, And he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He, that is Peter, will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. No wonder he sent for his family and his close friends. Cornelius is clear. He knows that he is a sinner. And he knows that he is not saved. But God has promised him that he will be. And so he sends for Peter. He is not yet a believer, nor is his family. What's amazing is that Peter doesn't immediately launch into the gospel. Instead, he makes a personal statement of what he has learned over the last two days. And honestly, it is a confession of sorts. Peter, over these last two days, comes to some self-awareness about himself and about the prejudice that exists within himself. We read in verses 34 and 35, Peter said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. The NIV uses the word favoritism there. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right and is acceptable to Him. Peter recognized in this statement, the inordinate pride of God's people. They had been set apart for a purpose. God's purpose. This did not make them better than others. Nor did it make others lesser than them. They were set apart to be a light unto the nations. And through the Messiah, God was calling the nations to Himself. Peter sees now that the gospel is for everyone. There is no racial, ethnic, religious, nor cultural barrier to salvation. It is an astonishing revelation to him. And I want to bring to us the fact that it's not unusual for the church to follow the example of Israel who had saw themselves as God's favorite better than others. Sometimes the way we talk to others, sometimes the way we handle ourselves 
sometimes we are communicating to others that somehow they are lesser than us. When in fact, we are all sinners. We are all unclean until Jesus makes us clean with his forgiveness. And we are wise in the church if we will be humble and recognize that the special calling we have from God to share the gospel with others does not make us God's favorites or better than others. It is a high calling of great responsibility. So we should be humble and faithful. Then Peter breaks into the gospel. As he's finishing the gospel, something happened that was totally unexpected. In verse 45 we read, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, the NIV says, astonished, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even onto the Gentiles. Peter was stretched while he was on the rooftop as God helped him deal with his prejudice there. But the Holy Spirit coming to the Gentiles revealed another layer of prejudice, exposing it and diminishing it as well in him. God did not intend merely for salvation to be for all people, but that the community of believers was to be for all people. And we see a movement now into a posture of unity in the purpose and people of God. Peter declares in verses 47 and 48, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Belief in Jesus and inclusion within the church was often affirmed through water baptism in the early church. Commanding that the Gentiles would be baptized by water Peter was essentially saying that the Gentiles will become full brothers and sisters with the Jews within the body of Christ. Paul would describe the Gentile inclusion calling us adopted children. And he would liken the inclusive body of the church to an olive tree. The cultivated branches being the Jews, the children of God, and the wild branches that are engrafted into that tree, the Gentiles. In fact, for those of you who know of our logo and its symbol uh, and symbolic meaning, it is symbolic of an olive tree in which there are branches that are cultivated and branches that are wild. And you'll notice that the different sizes of that mosaic suggests that there is diversity within that body. And it suggests that our history has been one in which the Jewish people and the Gentiles will come together in this church. 
and one that we will continue that ministry where God has placed us here in this area where that ministry is critically important. Including the Gentiles within the church certainly stretched Peter, but it also stretched the church. In the very next chapter, chapter 11, while Peter is reporting back to the church what has happened, we hear the prejudice of the hardliners among the Jewish believers who are critical of Peter when they say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter said he did. But as he explained what happened, they were silenced. God silenced them. It is because Peter took a posture of humility before God, took a posture of submission to God's agenda, that he was able to assume a posture of unity with the purpose and people of God. Jesus had taken down the wall of hostility that existed between Gentile and Jew. And he had made us brothers and sisters and one within the body of Christ. Later, in Acts 15, Peter affirmed God's love for the Gentiles again as he resisted requiring believing Gentiles to accept the Jewish holidays and laws. But this did not mean that Peter would never struggle again with prejudice. In Galatians 2, Paul tells us that he had to confront Peter, who refused to eat with Gentiles after critical hardliners showed up at Antioch and criticized him and complained about him. Now I wish that I could say that as believers, our faith in Jesus will eliminate all prejudice in us. It will not. The Spirit of God who makes us one with Jesus and therefore one with each other within the body of Christ will certainly make us aware of our prejudices, those which are conscious and those which are unconscious. And as He makes us more conscious of them, He will work in us to help diminish their impact and influence so that we might overcome them just as he did with Peter. God promises through the Holy Spirit that he will make us a new creation, sanctifying us so that we may become more and more like Jesus, embodying God's redemptive love and grace for all people. But even as the new creation in us gets stronger, the old sinful nature will remain. While it is diminished during our life, Scripture tells us we will never be free of it until we die. From the old sin nature, prejudice was born in us, and prejudice is harbored by us. This, though, we may, may be assured of. If we will take a constant posture of humility toward God and listen carefully, and if we will take a constant posture of submission to God's agenda, then we will, in an ever-deepening sense, become more and more self-aware 
and become more and more free from prejudice. And we will be able to live more in a posture of unity in the purpose and people of God. And one day, when all this is past and behind us, and we are in the kingdom of God in heaven, there will be no prejudice, just forgiven sinners who have been made clean by the blood of Jesus. As John wrote, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our prejudice as a church, how do we approach social injustice as a church? Well, I think when we're clear, right, when we're clear that the solution is not political, the solution is spiritual and moral, then we can determine what it is we want to stand for in terms of social justice and how we're going to approach it. But I would imagine that if I were to ask you about things, some of you would take political stances on social injustice. In 2009, I went on a thing called the experience called the Justice Journey with 40 other people from different churches throughout Chicagoland. And we were broken up into small groups of people of very different colors. And we communicated with each other as we traveled through the civil rights experiences that I grew up watching on TV and learning about them and discussing things like biblical justice and compassion and freedom and what Scripture has to say about it and how we're living it out or not living it out. And the one thing that became very obvious to all of us that nobody had to say to anybody else was that we were all prejudiced in some way and that we all couldn't even agree on how to work that out. But God can help us and I think when we get to that place as a church, then we need to be in prayer, deep prayer, be fully committed to it, and walk forward in that. But remember, and, and not engage in the political dialogue of it, engage in the spiritual dialogue of it so that people would know this is what we believe God wants of us. And then lastly... How does what Peter struggled with differ from racism? It really doesn't. That was a form of racism that would have existed in Peter's time. And the Romans felt exactly the same way about the Jews. They thought they were ingrates who didn't appreciate the Pax Romanus that they had brought. And even though they didn't like the taxes, nevertheless, the Romans thought that they brought a lot of good to all the countries that they occupied. 
So those would be my summary answers. Now, if you'd please rise for the benediction. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal.